Last evening, we discussed the way that Jesus was conceived as recorded for us in Matthew chapter one. We discussed his lineage and the importance of his lineage as the Davidic king, which qualified him to lay claim to the title of the Messiah of Israel. And we looked at the response of his earthly father, Joseph, to the angel's instructions from God and his obedience to these things. And these truths, as we discussed, help to shape not only our understanding of who Jesus is, but also our response to him. As we trust that he actually is capable of forgiving us of our sins, that he is God's long-awaited Messiah, and that we should respond in obedience to him. Now, you all know that when you leave here, there's some folks out there that hate Jesus. And they have spent many, many centuries, the opponents of Christ, trying to disprove the authority of scripture, the veracity of the virgin birth. They object to the idea that there was a savior born 2000 years ago that was virgin born. And they would say that's scientifically impossible. And to that, we would say, you're absolutely right. It is scientifically impossible. The biblical writers make no attempt to validate the virgin conception of Christ using rational scientific means because a virgin birth does violate the laws of human biology. But that's the point. It's called a miracle. And a miracle by definition is outside of the general laws that govern things like human biology. It's a miracle. It is an event that transcends the norms that govern human conception because it was brought about by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so in this sense, the incarnation of Christ wasn't ordinary. It was extraordinary. Or shall I say it this way? Extraordinary. It was not natural, it was super or supra natural. Now, in being conceived this way, we know that Jesus fulfilled prophecy. So last, last evening, I introduced you, or at least commented on the fact that in Matthew 1 and Luke 2, the writers are quoting from an ancient 700-year-old prophecy at the time from Isaiah. In Luke 2, Christ's conception is framed up as the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. So we're gonna head back to Isaiah. So now we're talking 2,700 years ago, back to Isaiah. And we're gonna look at this famous Emmanuel passage that the gospel writers quote from. Let me give you a bit of context. So in Isaiah chapter seven, the king at the time of Judah was a man by the name of Ahaz. I know sometimes these names get all mixed up. It's like there's Ahab and there's Ahaz. We have Ahaz. He's the Judean king. Now he is also, he is also of the line of David, just like Joseph was. So in that respect, he was a Davidic king, being the seventh great grandson of King David. And as the seventh great grandson of King David, as a Davidic king, that line we know would be the line from which the Messiah would come. They were supposed to be little Emmanuel's to the people. 
They were supposed to represent the theocratic king's fundamental job is to represent God's laws, God's reign, God's rules to the people of God. That was their job. Now we know if we look at the scriptures, there were some good kings and bad kings. Some of them did a little better job of it. Some of them completely fumbled the ball. And Ahaz was one of those kings that had some positives, but mostly he wasn't a man of faith. And in his time, his nation, Judah, was under attack, check this out, not only by enemy nations, but also by the northern tribes of Israel, known in the text as Ephraim. So his, the other covenant people of God in the north had conspired with the pagan nations around them, and they were seeking to attack Judah. So, so Ahaz is quite concerned about this, that his nation is going to fall apart. And of course, in the minds of everyone is the question, is God's covenant to us going to hold? Will God remain faithful to his people or will God abandon us? So this is the question that would have been circulating in the minds of the Judean people at the time. And into this mess steps the mighty prophet Isaiah. Isaiah is sent by God and he comes to Ahaz and he encourages Ahaz in Isaiah chapter seven, verses seven to eight, that God would ensure that Judah's enemies will fail. And then in that conversation, God invites Ahaz to ask him for a sign. Here's what it says in Isaiah seven, verse 11. He said, ask a sign of the Lord, your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol, the grave, or as high as heaven. Now that I would love for the Lord to ask, make me that offer. Ask me for anything. It can be as high as heaven or as deep as hell itself. What do you want? I want to prove to you that I love you. I'm a covenant God. I'm here for you. I'm with you. Ask me for anything. What would you ask for if God made that offer to you? Well, listen to how Ahaz strangely responds to this. Ahaz chooses the fatalist's response. He tries to dress it up in the garment of faith by giving God this semi-compliment, but it's really a fatalist response demonstrating his lack of faith. He says, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. It's like, no, thanks. I don't want to inconvenience you, God. I know you've made this offer to me. He should have said, Lord, redeem us from our enemies, deliver us from our enemies. But instead he just blows it off. And then after he chooses this path, not to exercise faith in God, not to ask God for a miracle, not to ask God for for redemption. God says, well, I'm going to offer you a sign anyway. I'm going to offer you a sign that I am faithful to my covenant and I will renew my people. And so this is the context. This is the background of this famous passage that most Christians are familiar with where God says in verses 13 and 14, he says, hear then, O house of David. Notice again, that emphasis on the messianic line. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? In other words, he's, he's, he's kind of chastising the Davidic kings of Israel. Davidic king after Davidic king had failed to exercise consistent faith in God. They were supposed to be little Emmanuel's 
to their people, but they failed. And so God says to the prophet Isaiah that he will bring the ultimate Davidic king who will govern his people, who will rule his people. Here's what it says in Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Ahaz didn't ask for it, so I'm just gonna give it. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. And this is part of the fundamental identity of our savior. He is God with us, which is as mind boggling as it is awesome. The overall promise to faithless Ahaz is directed beyond his generation, beyond this Davidic king and those that would follow him to the whole house of David, as the text says, to the whole house of David. David's dynasty would continue until a son would be born of a virgin who would be the ultimate Emmanuel to God's people in the truest sense, not just representing God, but God actually walking among his people. Now, why does this matter? It's, it's a super cool idea, but why does it matter? Think about this for a moment, brothers and sisters. What difference does Emmanuel make in your life? What difference has it made in your life over the past 12 months since last Christmas? Does it, does it matter? Or is it just an interesting part of our theology? I asked our staff this question. We generally meet for lunch on, on Wednesdays and we just kind of went around and we said, hey, you know, what does Emmanuel mean to you? And there was a lot of pretty interesting responses one of our staff members said, you know, the fact that God is with us reduces my anxiety. One of them said that it reminds me that God is intimately involved with his people. Another said, it means God is here to give us direction. Another testified to how loving it is to think about the fact that a, an infinite God would take an interest in biological beings. It speaks to the humility of God. It reminds us that while we were sinners, he died for us. There's a lot better places God could have been, but he was with us and he continues to be with us. It was good to testify to one another because doctrine is meant to make a difference in our lives. It's meant to affect the way that we think, the way that we act and the way that we feel. It's meant to affect the head, the hands and the heart. It's meant to transform us. And I would encourage you if you perhaps are in a bit of a funk, difficult time, a downtime, that you reflect on Emmanuel today, that God is with us. If you are one of his own, he is with us. And he continues to be with, he, be with us. He will never forsake his own. On the level of emotion and feeling, it might feel at times, that he has, but he never abandons his people. And he will be true to his promises till the end. And he will faithfully as the ultimate and final Davidic king represent God to us right up to the end. Secondly, he is born of a virgin. This is emphasized in the text. We discussed this a bit yesterday, but I wanna go back to it because it's really, really important that we wrap our minds around this. In the Isaiahic passage, the Hebrew word for virgin is Alma. And that word can be translated as young woman, meaning a pre-married woman, or 
a virgin. Now, presumably in, in the Hebrew mindset, that was one and the same because premarital sex was not acceptable. So to be a young woman, not yet married, is to be a virgin. So, but at the same time, there, there could be situations in which I suppose you could use the word Alma of a young woman who is not a virgin. But it's clearly meant to be understood as a virgin in particular in Isaiah because that's how Matthew and Luke interpret it in their gospels. And about 200 years before Christ, there was a fantastic translation of the the old covenant scriptures made from Hebrew into Greek, known as the Septuagint. And Greek is a much more precise language than Hebrew is. And when those ancient Hebrew readers were reading the Hebrew text of the time, 200 years before Christ, and translating it into Greek, which they were also quite familiar with, they translated this Hebrew word using a Greek word that specifically refers to a virgin. So taken as a whole, it's very clear here that Isaiah is not referring to some unnamed, unknown, 7th century BC young woman that would have a son who would be the Davidic ruler, but specifically a virgin who would give birth to the ultimate Davidic king. And there's only one person that qualifies that for that role in all of human history, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why is this important? Well, because Adam's decision to sin. Have you ever thought about the fact that Eve, in a certain sense, was the one that participated in the first sin, but Adam is named for it in the book of Romans? Why doesn't it say Eve was the first sinner? So we had a first Eve, we need a second Eve to save us from our sins. I mean, if if Eve sinned, why didn't Mary go to the cross, forgive us for our sins? Because Adam was the federal head and the seminal head of the human race. Adam was responsible for the sin of Genesis chapter three, first and foremost, as the head of that union, as the first Adam, as the first man. And because that first man, as the head of the human race, chose to disobey God, he plunged the whole of the human race into sin, which includes every single person I'm looking at today and the guy you're looking at today, all of us alike. We are conceived in sin and we act sinfully. Here's what the psalmist reminds us of in Psalm 51.5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not talking about a sinful act that his mother participated in, but he understood that human beings, it's a strange thought, are sinful from conception. It doesn't mean we're acting sinfully yet, but there's something about us that destines us to sinful behavior. This is why we cannot save ourselves. Some might argue, well, why should I be penalized for Adam's sin? Wasn't my problem, it was his problem. I wasn't in the garden. If I was in the garden, I would have said no. I would have done something different. I would have stood up. Yeah, right. The reason why we cannot save ourselves is because Adam's sin is both inherited and we act like Adam. And we've done so time and time again, disobeying God's laws. 
In Romans 5, 12 to 13, the Bible says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, because we know death is the consequence, we're cut off from eternal life. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Sin then we know came both through Adam and because all sin. Think about this. You don't have to teach a polar bear how to eat meat. It's inherited. You don't have to teach a snake how to bite. It's an inherited trait. And you don't have to teach human beings how to sin. It's inherited. We all do it. Some might do it a little more. Some might do it a little less. But we all sin. And this is why we are incapable of being our own saviors. This is why we're incapable of working it off or somehow trying to get back into right standing with God by our own efforts. The first Adam sinned. Therefore, we need a sinless second Adam to redeem us, to be our substitute, to die in our place. And folks, he did just that. And this is why we have hope today. This is why we like to talk about sin. Because we know there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Because it's our sin that introduced us to our Savior. And if you're a Christian, you've been redeemed by the the efforts of the Davidic king. So what is our hope? Well, Romans chapter five continues, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespasses, so one man made the decision on behalf of the human race to sin, many have died since, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, in case you don't know his name, here it is, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. It's a gift. I'm sure you've heard this many, many times, but gifts do not require a payment. Some of you probably opened some gifts today. We're gonna open some a little later on tonight. Looking forward to that. In our house, when we give gifts, we don't give gifts with an invoice attached. We don't give gifts with like a 90% off label. It's free or it's not a gift. It's possible that someone might sell you something that's very expensive for a very small amount of money. That's a great deal, but it's not a gift. It's just a really, really good deal. But a gift by definition is free. It's unearned, it's unmerited. And that is the nature of our salvation. It says in the 16th verse, and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Now, here we have a contrast between life in the first Adam, which ultimately led to death, and life in the second Adam, which ultimately leads to eternal life. Only a virgin conceived Davidic king can save us and he has done just that. He really has, praise the Lord for that. We have been pardoned and we've been justified because Jesus Christ perfectly obeyed all the laws of God. Never sinned once, 
I don't know about you, but when I read the Bible, I'm like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of laws in there. And I think about my own life and yes, I, I try to honor the Lord, but I fail and I fail again and again and again. We all know it is hard to even measure up to half of God's laws consistently. But imagine Jesus Christ obeying every single one, never having a sinful thought, never having a sinful desire, never participating in any sinful actions whatsoever. And he alone was capable of doing that because he was not only the second Adam, fully human, but not inheriting the first Adam's sin, but also fully divine and therefore sinless to his core. And out of his sinless sacrifice, he has offered to justify us. You've seen that verse there, the last, the last verse of the last word of verse 16. And to be justified means you've been pardoned. It means you have righteous standing before God. And it's granted to you, as I mentioned yesterday, a pardon requires that you acknowledge your guilt. A pardon is not a not guilty plea. A pardon by definition, you, you, admit it, you admit your guilt and the king says, okay, you've admitted your guilt. I'm gonna issue to you a royal pardon. Doesn't mean you're not guilty, but by my mercy and my benevolence, I'm gonna pardon you. Justification requires that we admit that we are sinners and that we do not, owe, God owes us nothing. He owes us nothing. The sooner you understand that, the more rapidly your worship life will increase. God owes us nothing, but he has justified us by the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ has been imputed, bestowed, given to you. So that now when God looks at you, he looks at you through the merits of Christ, not the merits of yourself. This passage emphasizes the expansive effect of sin and the expansive effect of grace. The expansive cataclysmic disease of sin brought about by Adam's sin and the expansive healing power of God's grace through our salvation. Verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned, and it really did. That's a strong word, but it's so accurate. It reigned, it ruled. Death reigned through that one man. How much more will those who receive the abundant grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. This is one of the coolest aspects of Christian theology. When you surrender to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, when you acknowledge that the Davidic King is the Messiah, he invites you to reign with him. He invites you into his Royal family. He doesn't consign you to the mop. He doesn't consign you to the janitorial closet. He doesn't consign you to the gardens. Go weed the gardens, knave. He invites you to be his son, his daughter, and to share in the royal inheritance that Christ has earned, that Christ is owed. It's a beautiful thing. So let us continue to thank God for his unspeakable gift. And let us allow this notion of God with us, the Davidic King, the savior of the world, to fuel our worship. When I got up this morning, I think the first verse that crossed my mind, I forgot the reference, but I looked it up, was Psalm 84:10. This fuels our worship. Here's what it says, and I'll leave you with this. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. 
I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. So be blessed, dear church. And we'll look forward to regathering again in 2023, next week, to continue to worship the King who is worthy. 